0: Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. I'm so happy to have you back here. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Truppiana and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you already know how much I love and appreciate you guys. I love interacting with you and thank you so much for all the love and support that you've always shown me, but especially all the love and support you've shown me lately. So before I even get into anything, if you hear breathing, I have two of my dogs laying on the bed behind me. They needed somewhere to hang out, so I'm sorry if you hear, like, breathing because they're snoring, or if you hear or see anything in the background, I've got two little pitties sleeping there, so apologies. So lately, I have been skipping my about my life section on this podcast because Recently, in the last three episodes that I put up, it was Albert Anastasia part one, two, and three. And all of these episodes were jam-packed with information and already had like a really, really long video setup. And usually when I have like multi-part episodes that are so long that I have to break it into parts one and two or one, two, and three, I go ahead and I skip the about me section of the video. I already have an hour and a half like, sectioned off for this video, I need to get all this information out, and the about my life section just isn't the most important, so I usually skip it when there's a lot going on. So today is not a multi-part episode, so I am going to be throwing a little about my life section in there. Once again, as I always say, every single one of my videos has chapters in the description. If you aren't interested in my life update, which if you aren't, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to be. You can skip to the chapter that is this week's Gangster's Childhood and just go straight into the episode. I like to spend a little while giving a full update on how I'm feeling and everything that's going on in my life and everything. So that isn't for everybody and I totally understand. So if you're interested in this week's gangster and you aren't interested in listening to me talk about my life, Go ahead and click on to the next chapter, and that's no big deal. So now that we have gotten rid of everybody that's not interested, one thing about me is that you'll notice I record in spurts. I record three episodes, and then I skip one or two, and then rinse and repeat. Record three, skip one or two, and there is a reason for that. I had a whole thing planned to talk about on this video, but now that it's not the week that I typically skip, I don't really care about anything that I was going to talk about on the ears. So if you hear me getting like sappy or like complainy, it's usually because I pushed myself to record on a week that I did not want to record on. So trust me, I'm sorry about the sporadic recording, but trust me, you don't want to hear from me on those weeks that I don't record at all. I'm doing you a favor, okay? <laughs> What I will tell you is that I've actually been doing really well. I did my live the other day because I finally hit 5,000 followers, which is absolutely amazing. I can't tell you how happy and excited I am to finally hit this benchmark that I have been working towards for years now. I gave $100 to Potato, and I'm so happy that he was there in the chat, so I was able to send it to him right then and there. But then I sat up in the live, and I was up until 4 o'clock in the morning, and the whole time, Hopelessly Hopeless and Timnor was in the live with me and they were talking. And since Hopelessly was my runner-up and Timnor was a trooper and hanging out... I made plans to make drawings, intricate drawings for each one of them. I'm drawing my logo and then around it is going to be dragons and other like really cool, fun stuff. And I'm so excited to make these drawings that I legit want to draw this more than I want to sleep. You don't understand how much it means to me that like they would want this that it would mean something to them. They talked about how they were going to have it framed. And I'm like, that is the coolest thing I could ever imagine. And I can't draw. Like, I'm garbage at drawing. I stencil, but not great at, like, original drawing. And they know that. And they still want it. And it's so cool. I'm so excited to do it. I'm so honored that that's something that they will make space in their lives for. And I'm just, I'm psyched. As I was telling people in my live, because I did a live, I gave $100 away for hitting 5K. And a lot of people didn't win. I had like 40 people enter. And obviously that means that 39 people did not win. However, don't leave because you didn't win. I will be having giveaways all the time. Like I, trust me, I spend enough money on this channel that doing little giveaways to give back to my followers is never too much. When I hit 10K, I'll do a giveaway. When I hit 15K, I'll do a giveaway. 20K, giveaway. I'll get a sweatshirt that I like that I want somebody in my followers to have. Do a giveaway. So don't be like, oh, I didn't win the giveaway. I don't want to be here anymore. I promise you, you will have other opportunities to win stuff on my channel. And if you guys help me to build my following, I'll do giveaways more and more. Especially if I'm ever able to monetize. Like, I have 5,000 followers, but up to this date, I've made like $9 from YouTube. I've literally never even cashed it out. But if I ever get to a point where I'm actually making money off my YouTube, oh my god, the amount of giveaways and give backs that I'm going to do is astronomical. So yeah, just stick around and I promise you, you will get to participate in more than one giveaway. Other than that, I went out last night, and it was one of the funnest times in my life. One of the things about me is I don't give material presents. If you get a present from me, it's going to be an experience. For this present, I got my dad a night out for Father's Day, and I bought everything for yesterday. I brought him and my husband and we went to Spark Steakhouse because my dad hadn't been there yet and I loved the place so much that I really wanted him to go so I bought it for him. And then I got tickets to see Hamilton on Broadway. I could tell he wasn't really excited to go see Hamilton and no matter how many times I told him that Hamilton spent years being sold out, that the tickets were virtually impossible to get and that I got third row seating that this is one of the best Broadway shows ever made. He was like, he was totally not psyched. He heard that the play was done in like a rap slash hip hop way. And he really wanted nothing to do with it. I don't really know why either. Because a few years ago, I made him watch it on Hulu with me and he liked it. But that was years ago. And I guess he forgot that he liked it. I don't know. So we went and all I can say is, oh my God, like this was the best live performance I have ever seen in my life. And that's coming from someone who grew up in New York and had access to Broadway all her life. It was absolutely amazing. And he loved it, and I loved it, and husband loved it. Everybody loved it. It was a blast. Outside of that, I bought an hour with a psychic this week, and I'm really excited to do that. I have an appointment on Thursday, and I cannot wait. The amount of dead people in my life is absolutely crazy. So I'm really hoping to get some closure with some of the people that I know that were close to me that I lost. I'm really just hoping it's not one of those like, oh, yeah, your loved one said they're doing amazing type things. Like I'll know if it's fake. My people know what to say to let me know that it's really them. Like I made it very clear with each one of them. Hey, if I ever go to a psychic after you died, this is what I want to hear. So if I don't hear that, I'm going to know for a fact that it's fake. But I Just really hope it's not. I really hope it's not. Everybody's been dead for a really long time. And this is the first time I've ever sought out any kind of psychic or medium. Oh, I'm going to a medium, not a psychic. Sorry about that. I'm going to a medium. But honestly, right now, I'm on a healing journey. I've been in such a bad place for such a long time. And honestly, I'm just sick of it. Like, I irritate myself when I'm depressed or sad, like I cannot stand it. I'll yell at myself, be like, God, you're being such a bitch, get over it. Like, I don't like it. And I have so much empathy for other people that feel that way. When other people are sad and depressed and they have those kind of moods, I am the opposite with them. You know, oh my God, I'm so sorry, what can I do? I'm here to listen, let's talk, I'll bring food over. Like I do what I can to get people out of depressed moods. But for me, I treat myself like shit when I'm depressed or sad. Like I just act like I'm annoying and I feel like I'm annoying. I'm annoying myself. I'm annoying anybody that I come in contact with. And I'm just sick of it. I want so badly to be in a place that I can be happy and at peace. And I just don't foresee that for myself in the future right now. So I'm trying to take steps towards that. And I really do believe in like the afterlife and mediums and psychics and all that kind of stuff. I'm not like one of those like astrology girls or anything like that, but I totally believe in spiritualism and meditation, astral projection, that kind of stuff. So I have a three part plan that starts with a medium. I know that a lot of the depression and sadness in my life comes from a lot of emptiness I have from the people that I was really close to that died. So I'm hoping that this medium will help me move forward from that. After that, I really, really want to go find a place to do ayahuasca. It's something that I've always wanted to do. And I've heard amazing things as far as what it can do for a person's mental health and for helping them connect with like the spirit world and work out problems going on in their lives and what's the matter with them. So I'm going to make that happen. I also plan after that to find a spiritual healer because honestly, I feel like I'm in need of one. I want to say that ever since the military, I've had a lot of pain in my soul. But if I'm being honest, the pain and the feelings that were going on was a huge driving factor in why I went into the military. So I can't even say like, oh, it's because of the military. And I've been like this since then. It was going on before that. Maybe it's always been there. Maybe I was born this way. But either way, it doesn't really matter. I need to fix it. So I'm going to finally do something about it. And since I don't really want to go to a grippy socks vacation, this is my plan. If you guys have any recommendations or anything in particular that really worked for you and you think it would be a good idea, I always appreciate any kind of recommendations or insights because if I'm being honest, I'm not a genius on this kind of stuff. I'm not well versed. I haven't done a ton of research. So I know that there's a lot of people out there that are a lot more well-versed and educated on the subject. So if anybody knows anything and they say like, oh, I went and did this, let me know. Cause I'd love for some recommendations. Outside of that, I'm really working hard to get my space figured out. I already have a renovation planned in my house and my entire kitchen and dining room and bathroom are being redone, which is super awesome. And I can't wait for that because honestly, I have serious issues with my space around me not being good. If everything is messy, if like my living room is messy, my bedroom is messy, my kitchen is messy. If that's going on, I feel like everything is imploding. I feel like my entire life is falling apart. I feel like doom and despair and all that jazz. So with going through the three things that I plan to do and getting my house renovated so that it's nice and not falling apart anymore... I think I have a good shot at putting my head in a better space and hopefully becoming like a better all-around person. Also, I haven't touched on the fact that I'm sorry about skipping the last three weeks. I've been really, really sick and I'm having surgery sometime this month to fix it, but getting out of bed for the last few weeks has just felt impossible. And I'm sorry that I missed so much time, but I hope that you guys understand and give me a little leeway for the flexible schedule coming up for the next few weeks because I need to get this surgery. So without it, I'm a mess. So anyways, let's go ahead and get into this week's gangster, shall we? Today, we are going all the way to Mother Russia. This is the first Russian gangster that we're going to cover on here, and I don't know about you, but I am super excited about it. While we're on the topic, let's get this straight. I can barely pronounce Italian names, and I was born with that shit in my blood, okay? I can pronounce Trubiana and Anastasia and Luciano, but... Honestly, I'm struggling tonight, so please try to keep your criticisms to a minimum. I know that a lot of the names and places that I'm going to pronounce are wrong. I'm doing my best. I don't need to be told about mispronouncing these dudes' names. I know. I'm doing my best here. You don't come here for perfection. If you're a returning viewer, you literally come here to listen to me be dumb for an hour or two, okay? So let's go ahead and get started, and let's all be okay with the fact that I suck at pronunciation. So getting started today, this gangster's name is actually really rarely talked about. I don't really see a lot of mention of him anywhere. It may be that I haven't ever really heard his name because he's not Italian-American. He's not Italian at all. And I tend to gravitate towards like the mafia guys. He's a Russian-Ukrainian mafia boss whose early criminal activities started from scamming people and then went on to fraud and other crimes. So he's not exactly mafia-level organized crime. So maybe that's why he's not really talked about that often, because a lot of the people that I view, a lot of the information that I view, all of that is all in organized crime, and he's not so much in that, so... Even though I am veering off from my normal topic, I still hope that you guys hang around, enjoy my company, I enjoy yours. So let's go ahead and get into this gangster and everything that he did. Semyon Yudkovich Mogulavich is a Jewish man who was born on June 30th, 1946, in the neighborhood of Kiev's Podil in Ukraine, which is formerly a part of the Soviet Union, to a Jewish Ukrainian family. Kiev is the main capital and the most populated city in Ukraine, and it's in the Dnieper River, which is spelt all kinds of crazy for such an easy name, but it's in the Dnieper River of the north-central of Ukraine. The deprivation of the city's name was gotten from Ky, K-Y-I, which was one of its four legendary founders. Whereas Podil is a lower city in the historic neighborhood of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, which is located at the floodplain terrace of the Dnieper in the lower stream of Hochiana River and Kiev Hills. Podil is one of the oldest neighborhoods in Kiev and practically the birthplace of the city's commerce. It's where all the trade and industry started out. The particular name of Podil means something situated downward, which I guess is coming from the river because it's like at the lower part of Kiev and it's at the lower part of the river. So downward, bottom, lower, you know. Semyon grew up and did attend a tertiary education. He attended and graduated with a degree in economics, University of Lviv. The University of Lviv which is now known as the Ivan Franco National University of Lviv. Mogulovich's time at the University of Lviv, however, was overshadowed by his criminal activities and his involvement in the underworld. So we definitely see a pattern that's about to come out. This man will spend the rest of his life doing things like this. He'll do good things, but bad things underneath. Legitimate businesses, Illegal businesses underneath. And we'll just continue to see that. So, although he is doing the right thing and he's attending this tertiary education, which we're guessing is, you know, a bachelor's degree, while he's doing that, he is also completely involved in the underground world and doing a lot of illegal stuff at the same time. He became involved in organized crime during the 1970s and he quickly rose through the ranks. Eventually, he would become one of the most powerful figures in the global criminal underworld, not just Russia, not just the Ukraine, the globe. Despite Mogulovich's background in academic success, his true expertise really did lie in criminal enterprises. He was a criminal genius, and he used his education and knowledge of the economy and all financial systems, and he used that to manipulate financial systems. He's been known to use his knowledge of economics to exploit loopholes and engage in large-scale financial frauds. One notable aspect of his early rise to wealth and power, like if you want to see what did he start out doing, what was the first landmark horrible thing that he did, it was his involvement in this scam that targeted Soviet Jews particularly Ukrainian and Russian Jews, who were seeking to emigrate. Most of them were seeking to emigrate to Israel. He would capitalize on the desperation and the dreams of those people looking to leave the Soviet Union. During the late 1980s and 1990s, the Soviet Union was undergoing a significant political and social change. What that meant for everyday people was that the restrictions to emigrate from the country were loosened a lot. It was a lot easier for people to leave. And when you're in a place that's poor and you're struggling, the idea of being able to emigrate is a huge one. They, they want to do that. They want to leave and they want to go find opportunities elsewhere. And now that's possible because the Soviet Union loosened their restrictions on doing that. The only bad thing is this period provided a fertile ground for opportunistic individuals like Mogilevich to exploit the aspirations of those people that are yearning for a better future. Mogilevich set up schemes that promised to facilitate the emigration for Soviet Jews. In other words, there's all this bureaucratic mess, there's all this paperwork, there's all this this and that that you have to do in order to emigrate from the country that you're in, give up citizenship, get citizenship wherever you want to go. And the scams that Mogulovich put together was pretty much designed to prey on the hopes and dreams of these people. These people were willing to pay significant amounts of money in order to secure the documents, the permits, and the assistance to leave the Soviet Union. Victims of this scam believed that they were paying for legitimate services that would help them navigate the bureaucratic process and obtain necessary approvals for emigration and immigration into the new country that they were going to. Unfortunately... Instead of fulfilling his promises, Moglovich and his associates would just pocket the funds and they would never deliver any of the services that they promised. And one huge thing that's notable about Moglovich is he's really good at creating a business plan and making it look like he's legit. You can't just go up to somebody and tell them that you're going to help them emigrate and they're going to believe you and pay you. No. No. He was an expert at putting together a business plan, making it look like he really knew what he was doing and he had the capability to help people. And he really could have if he wanted to, but it was just easier and more profitable for him to just pocket the money that he got and not actually help anybody. Victims of this scam found themselves cheated out of their hard-earned money and left in a state of despair. They spent everything they had on this and... Once it was gone, it was gone. There was nothing anybody could do. Their dreams of starting new somewhere else were shattered and they were stuck where they were and a lot worse off than when they started. Mogulovich's involvement in these emigration scams not only allowed him to amass a significant fortune but also established his reputation as a cunning and ruthless criminal. A lot of people from the outside looking in saw his ability to exploit vulnerable individuals and manipulate their aspirations for personal gain. It shows his willingness to engage in morally reprehensible activities to further his criminal enterprise. And unfortunately, you know, criminals, that's what they want. They want to see someone that has no problem scamming people, that has no problem preying on people and hurting them for no reason. At some point, there was reports that Mogilevich had amassed a significant amount of wealth by acting as an intermediary in the sale of jewelry and artwork that belonged to Jews who had emigrated from Kiev in the 1980s. These reports shed light on Mogilevich's involvement in exploiting the circumstances of the time to profit from the valuable possessions that were left behind by emigrants. In the 1980s, the Soviet Union saw a huge growth in the desire from the Jewish population to emigrate and get out of there. They wanted to go to other countries. They wanted to go to Israel, to the United States. They wanted to get out of where they were. Many Jews faced various challenges in their efforts to leave, including restrictions on emigration imposed by Soviet authorities which pretty much said like what you could take and what you couldn't. So they would say, you can't take X amount of money. You can't take this kind of artwork. You can't take this kind of jewelry. So a lot of Jews, they didn't have the option to leave with everything they owned. As the Jews left their homes behind, they often had to abandon or sell their valuable possessions, such as jewelry and artwork before they departed the Soviet Union. Magalowich, Once again, he just recognized an opportunity to profit off the suffering and bad situation that others were in. And he is a Ukrainian Jew, so he is benefiting off the sacrifice of people in his own community, which is extra shitty. He recognized the opportunity to profit from this situation and positioned himself as a facilitator for the sale of these items. He took advantage of his connections in the criminal network. And he established an entire network of buyers that were interested in acquiring the stuff that was left behind by the Jewish emigrants. He operated as an intermediary, identifying potential buyers who were willing to pay significant amounts of money for the jewelry and artwork and valued possessions that were left behind by emigrating Jews. He would negotiate the terms and prices on behalf of the sellers. So, like, pretty much he would come in and, like, be a facilitator of consignment. And if you don't know what consignment is, it's pretty much like a pawn shop kind of. But so they'll come in, they'll give you X amount for, let's say you have a gold necklace and you think the gold necklace is worth a lot of money. Let's say it's worth $500. The pawn shop or the consigner, he'll give you, let's say, $100 and say, okay, I will give you, I'll sell it. And then if it sells for $500, I'll take $50 for the sale for my effort. And then I'll give you the difference between 100 and... 450 So you would end up walking away with $350. Cool. Great thing. But the problem is, is that when Magalovich would do this, he would pay them $100, say, okay, I'm going to give you the extra $350. And he would just pocket it. He wouldn't give anything extra. By doing this, he was able to secure assets at a lower price and then sold it in his network for considerable profit. By capitalizing on the misfortunes of those emigrating from Kiev, He profited from the trust that other Jews had in people within their community. They looked at him and said, "Okay, you are somebody that comes from our community. You are a person that was born in Kiev. You grew up with us. You're not going to screw us. You wouldn't do that. And he did do that. He would sell these items at market value. Like he made a lot of money doing this. I don't he would distribute the earnings, he would promise to forward the funds to either Israel or United States, wherever the emigrating Jews had ended up, and he didn't give them anything. And they had relied on this money to start them up in their new country. They went to this new country with nothing but the clothes on their back. And they said, okay, it's okay, we'll struggle until we get the money from the consignment. And then mogulovich just pocketed it. And they had nothing, nothing but the clothes on their back. And they relied on somebody from within their community. And obviously their trust was misplaced. He would use the extra funds that he made to invest further in the black market. He would pay more criminals to work for him. And he would further his underground criminal empire. By the 1990s, Mogilevich was a millionaire and he had the balls to take the money that he had amassed from the Jews fleeing to Israel and head to Israel himself. He took several of his lieutenants with him, but unsurprisingly, he didn't last long there. He moved on to Hungary within a year, but I'm like getting ahead of myself. But imagine screwing an entire community, like having an entire community put their trust in you screwing them over and then trying to go live within that community at the new country like you are a horrible person regarding the crimes of handling currency and handling the paperwork bureaucracy all of that he was sentenced to two separate sentences he got sentenced to three years and four years in jail when he got out of prison in the style of the american mafia family he swiftly established an organized criminal organization he created this organization he had 250 members in this organization, and most of those people were his relatives, so it was easy for him to trust these people. He's referred to as the boss of bosses, so like what we refer to as the di tutti kapi, and he's referred to as the boss of bosses of the majority of the Russian mafia syndicates in the world. And most agencies in the European Union and the United States refer to him that way. The FBI has cited him as the most powerful and dangerous gangster in the world on multiple occasions. He's thought to be in charge of a multi-billion dollar international criminal empire. He has enormous power and influence on a worldwide scale. This is probably how he got his nickname, The Billionaire Don, and some other nicknames he picked up along the way was The Brainy Don and The Russian Mafia's Godfather. Here is where my pronunciation is going to just suck, okay? I'm not going to pretend that I have any idea how to say the words that are about to come out of my mouth. I am doing my best, I promise. I'm trying. It's hard, okay? It's really hard. During the 1980s, Semyon Mogilevich was identified by the FBI as a prominent figure in organized crime, and the key money laundering contact for the Solnitskaya Bratva, also known as the Sontsevo Brotherhood, is one of the most powerful and influential organized crime groups in all of Russia. Mogolevich joined the Layakovitskaya crime group in Moscow. I got through that word. So he joined this crime group when he got to Moscow, and this group, the Layakovitskaya, was very close with the Solnetsvikaya Bratva and worked really close with them. So they established a rapport right away. The Bratva was structured the same way that the American Mafia is organized. And it had its own government the way that the American Mafia does. Sergei Mikolov, a former waiter who had served a jail sentence for fraud, created the Sonietzvikaya gang. In the late 1980s, the gang, which had its headquarters in Moscow's Sonietzvo district, engaged unemployed, brash young guys as foot soldiers and also used Jamal Kuchize, a thief by marriage, to improve their standing among seasoned criminals because they're a fairly new organization. So they used this in order to just booster the hell out of their reputation. So we all know one thing. We know that the Soviet Union no longer exists. The Soviet Union fell. And the Solzhenitsyn gang took advantage of that confusion. Because the Soviet Union falling, it changed everything. You're in that country. Think about if America just stopped being America. And all of a sudden, like the South was a country and the North was a country. It would cause all kinds of confusion. And that's what happened. And this gang was able to step in during this confusion and would cultivate connections with politicians in order to strengthen their positions. Because all of a sudden, like, okay, let's say, I don't even know who the mayor of New York is right now. Wow, that's really bad. Let's say the mayor of New York. I don't know who it is. I'm pretty sure it's a girl. Um, Let's say the mayor of New York. Now, instead of being the mayor of New York, when the country breaks down like that. Now this is like a presidential figure. The gang took advantage of the confusion because they went to these low-lying politicians that would soon become very powerful politicians, but they went to them before they had gained all that power and were able to strengthen their position by cultivating really strong relationships with these politicians. That put them in a place that they were able to exert a lot of power within the Russian government and They were able to sway rules and laws their way. They were also able to create a number of respectable companies that would help them launder their money, hide their cash. And this would include like legit businesses, banks, casinos, airports, anything. When the Soviet Union fell, they were all up for grabs and grab they did. The Solnyets Vikaya gang began entering the banking industry towards the end of the 1990s, which gave them a very easy means for money laundering and allowed them to mingle with oligarchs like they're going to the same bank as the oligarch and it allows them to make their presence known and try to switch over the public opinion. Because as I said before, you cannot operate when the public hates you. You can't. So the way that the American mafia made an attempt to win over the public, and it worked, that's what they're trying to do right now. They're mingling with oligarchs. They're getting into the banking industry. They're like, yeah, we're not a criminal organization. We're the good guys. Come hang out with us. And it's starting to work. According to U.S. diplomatic cables, Maglovich, he owns Rosuker Energo, which is a corporation which is actively involved in disputes over gas between Russia and Ukraine. So we're going to talk a little bit later about how he kind of took over the entire energy industry in Ukraine and really had an impact on the economy as a whole in Ukraine. This is how he did it, because he owns Rosuker Energo, and that company would facilitate the disputes between gas, and they really just were able to manipulate it to a point where they ran the entire energy industry. Mogulovich is widely regarded as one of the most dangerous and powerful mafia bosses in the entire world. He's been associated with a wide range of criminal activities, including financial, mail, securities, and wire fraud, bracketeering, human trafficking, conspiracy, and organized crime. During the 1980s, Mogilevich's association with the Soznievo Bratva became a focal point of investigations by international law enforcement agencies, including the FBI. The USA wanted him just as bad as the rest of the world. The Sotsnyevo Bratva, based in Moscow, was known for its extensive criminal operations, ranging from racketeering to smuggling to contract killing and money laundering. They established a vast network that extended all the way across Russia and had connections with criminal organizations worldwide, including those within America. Mogulovich's role within the Sotsnyevo Bratva was primarily focused on money laundering. He was a financial whiz, and they were going to utilize that. If this man is a genius in finance, why would you use him for anything other than money laundering? Now, for my listeners that haven't been here for a while, money laundering is just, it's the process of disguising money that comes into your organization and making it look like it came in legally. In other words, if you make a million dollars, but... None of it is on the books. You can't go spend that because the government's going to be like, hey, uh, where did the money for this come from? And you're going to get hit with tax evasion. So money laundering pretty much takes illegal money and puts it on the books so that it looks like it was obtained legally, you pay taxes on it, and you can spend it freely. By utilizing complex financial schemes and international networks, Mogilevich allegedly helped the Soltnievo Bratva launder vast amounts of money. To launder the money, he used methods such as shell companies, offshore accounts, and front businesses to conceal the true nature of funds. The process usually involved moving illicitly obtained funds through a series of transactions and layers of legitimate businesses, which would make it more difficult for law enforcement to trace the money back to the criminal origins and any criminal charges for money that's coming in that the government can't see. And that's going to also not allow the government to recoup those, because if you have a million dollars and it's illegally obtained, the government can take that money by saying, hey, that's illegally obtained. You launder the money and you put it on the books so that it looks like it was made legally and they can't obtain that. That's money that you made legally, so they can't take that from you. Mogulovich's involvement in money laundering extended way beyond just the Bratva. He's believed to have connections with other criminal organizations and individuals involved in organized crime across the world. He worked with the mafia in Italy, in America, he worked with German mafia, like every single place he worked with it. I actually did an episode on Kareem Lala. I could pretty much guarantee you this man had connections with Lala or the organization that Lala worked with him. And that gave him a significant position in the underworld. He was a very important person. And eventually he started running the Bratva. Even though money laundering was the main thing that he did, his criminal activities far extended just money laundering this man was a (laughs) dirtbag like real life he did dirty 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 things such as scamming people out of their money when they're trying to emigrate or scamming people out of retirements he was big in human trafficking so when i say that he was a very big figure within money laundering yes he was that was his main thing but he definitely did other things so this isn't someone like oh it's a victimless crime no which is bold of me to say because this man is still alive, but you know what, he can't leave Russia, so come see me bruh. On top of the criminal empire that he built, Mogolevich also had quite the social life. He first married Tatiana Markova, with whom he had a daughter. Mila Semyonova was born on November 22nd, 1972, and she was his first child. In FBI documents, Tatiana is mentioned as residing in Los Angeles, California now. She and her business partner, Zoya Sokolovskaya, own a company called Medicist Medical Supply and Equipment. His second wife was Galina Grigoreva, with whom he had a son, Julius Semyonovic Grigorev, who was born in London. Galina is now married to Adrian Churchwood, who is the managing director and counselor of Aragon Limited, a company that we'll go over in a little bit, but right now all you need to know is that it is a company owned by Makalovic. After relocating to Hungary, Makalovic married Cattle and Pap, making her his third and final marriage. He's still married to her to this day. Papp a Hungarian citizen, became Magalowicz's wife and mother to his third and final child that's on the books, another son, Grigorev Yuli, and he was born on June 21st, 1983. After he married Catalin Pap. He gained Hungarian citizenship under the Marriage Reunification Act, which would allow him to reside in Hungary, and that made it possible for him to expand his criminal activity with relative ease. Maglovich settled in a fortified villa just outside of Budapest, and that served as his base of operations at the time. This move allowed him to expand his criminal activities into new territories and establish a pretty strong foothold in Central Europe, which is always great. You know, that's a very big business hub everybody wants to get in on Central Europe. So his ability to do that now that he was a citizen of Hungary was great. So now, Mogulovic is in a very good spot. He's married to this new girl. He has this new Hungarian citizenship. He has no charges against him or anything. He's great. He's expanding into Central Europe. He is running the Bratva. Everything's going perfect for him. With his newfound status and his access to new resources, Magalovich continued to invest in various enterprises, and they were both legal and illegal, and he more heavily got involved on the illegal side of things. One notable acquisition was the purchase of a local armament factory, or an arms factory, called Army Co-op. This factory specialized in the production of anti-aircraft guns, which are weapons that are designed to target and destroy aircraft in military conflict. So they are doing military-grade weapons, and they're doing it legally. His acquisition of Army Co-op presented a lot of advantages. It provided a legitimate front for his criminal activity and a way to launder his money, It allowed him to conceal illicit operations behind the facade of a legal enterprise. And it gave him a lot of access to weapons. There were certain weapons that he was allowed to deal because, I mean, a legitimate company can't be going and dealing in nuclear weapons or anything. But what it did do was put him in touch with the people who made the weapons. So he's army co-op and he's a legitimate business owner. And he goes and he buys a few, let's say, AK-47s. Totally legal, totally above board. But when he purchases those AK-47s, he goes to the owner and he says, hey, you don't happen to have a rocket launcher, do you? And Jude is like, yeah, I do have a rocket launcher. You know that's illegal, right? And Moglovich is like, I didn't really want to buy that. Come back here at 7 o'clock tonight. Let's have a talk about how that's not what I was saying. So it gives him a lot of advantages. It puts him in touch with a lot of the people in the industry. It makes him well-known in the industry. And everybody knows about his organized crime background, so nobody is really too concerned about dealing illegally with them. A huge benefit here is that the underground arms market is known to be a very, very, very lucrative industry. All criminal organizations, terrorist organizations, everybody illegal is seeking weapons, obviously. So every terrorist organization, every mafia group or gang or anything that needs weapons can go to Moglovich. His organization is well-known to traffic weapons and nuclear materials, as well as prostitutes, drugs, and precious gems. I don't know if the precious gems thing is from the emigrating Jews thing, but it doesn't really matter either way. He's dealing in some serious shit. So weapons is meh. The FBI says that by 1994, the Mogulovich Organization, as they refer to it as, was operating across Central Europe including Prague, the Czech Republic, Vienna, Austria, and Moscow. Its business dealings also spread to the U.S., the Ukraine, the U.K., France, Slovakia, and Israel. Although he did have involvement in legal arms being manufactured because he owns the army company, the big-scale factories were the illegal ones. So you've got, you know, decently sized weapons being manufactured legally. And then you've got these huge, very, very dangerous weapons being made illegally. And because the ones that were illegal were the bigger ones, it means that they sold for more money, which required him to find a way to launder millions and millions of dollars that are being made through these illegal factories. He had businesses in the US, Israel, Russia, Japan, Prague, Bulgaria, the UK, and he even created the first funeral society in Moscow. And this is all legal businesses, and he's creating these and pretty much running them just to launder money from the illegal arms manufacturing. His organization was well known to be involved in money laundering, weapons sales, and manufacturing, Fraud and extortion, and his legal companies, they were just there to clean the money. At this time, he's running the number one Russian criminal empire called the Solznievo. The Hungarian authorities and international law enforcement have been aware that this guy is sideways forever. Regardless of the fact that he has billions of dollars of legitimate businesses on pretty much every continent on the planet, it's very clear to all law enforcement that this is not a legitimate man. Obviously, the amount of money that he has and the connections that he have, that makes it really hard to apprehend him, no less like try him and have him found guilty. In 1994, Semyon Mogilevich and his criminal organization, often referred to as the Mogilevich Group, gained control over Incom bank. Income Bank is one of the largest private banks in all of Russia, or was at the time. The acquisition of this bank was a huge, huge milestone in his rise to power because it puts him in the actual finance trade. This is no longer just a guy that can open a business and run it. Income Bank is already a standing bank. It's already very well... It's like if John Gotti took over control of Chase Bank. That is the same thing that's going on right here. Because before John Gotti was put on trial, you couldn't prove that he was a criminal. According to him, he was just a business owner. He did legal stuff and no court in the world could prove anything else. And that's the situation that's going on with Semyon Moglovich right now. Everybody in the world knows he's a criminal. Everybody knows that all of his businesses are sideways, none of them are running completely legitimately, but there's nothing that anybody can do about it. Nobody's been able to try him, nobody can come up with the proof for it. So if he wants to go and take control of the biggest bank in Russia, there's really nothing stopping him. He obtained direct access to the global financial system doing this. Being the head of the biggest bank in one of the biggest countries on the planet, like That's a huge, huge thing. It gives you the same amount of control as any government official, probably more. Because honestly, governments, they don't control the world. What controls the world? Money. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not public knowledge that Mogilevich has the ownership of this bank, because as much as nobody's ever found him guilty of anything, everybody still knows he's a criminal. So he can't be out there telling everybody that he owns or runs this bank. So what does he do? He has a man named Vladimir Vinodogrov, and he has him step in as the president, CEO, whatever, and he's just pretty much doing whatever Mogilevich tells him to. Vinodogrov was the president and owner of Incom Bank, and I'm saying it like that because it's not income Bank, it's Incom Bank, I N K O M Bank. And it's one word, Incom Bank. And Incom Bank is one of the largest and most profitable banks in all of Russia throughout the entire 1990s. Vinodogrov would be listed as one of the top 20 most richest Russians in 1996. And at the time, he's regarded as an oligarch in Russia. Vinodogrov joined Boris Yeltsin's Business Advisory Council, being one of the so-called seven bankers, the financial group surrounding Yeltsin. And in 1997, he was the vice president of the Association of Russian Bankers. So these seven bankers, they're, they're the important guys. And it's kind of known that they make all the financial decisions for all of Russia. Like Vladimir Putin, he may make decisions as far as whether to go to war with Ukraine or anything. But if you want to look at the strength of the Russian ruble, I think it is, you're going to look at these seven bankers. So it's a very prestigious title to be part of this little tiny group. Incombank, also known as the Moscow Innovative Commercial Bank, was founded in October of 1988. And eventually grew to be Russia's largest private bank. So it's not only one of the top banks, it is the top private bank in Russia. ben was well known for both his impulsive and politically foolish words. He could not handle himself in front of the cameras. He's well known to be honest and fair in the boardroom, but you put him in front of cameras and he's gonna say some dumb shit. So he's the guy that like you want running your company, but you don't want stepping out in front of the cameras. He's had some significant international contacts, including with the U.S. consulting firm McKinsey and the London branch, the Rothschild Bank. And we all know who the Rothschilds are. And the Rothschild Bank, they created a business plan for him. So this man's important. Incombank also owned Samara Metallurgical, a company that produces aluminum and a minority share in Suhoi, a manufacturer of jet fighters. Which is pretty cool. That's pretty dope. Like, uh, I own a jet fighter company. Like, what do you do? Imagine? That's a pretty dope brag. Don't lie. Like, sick brag, bro. Cool. <laughs> in nineteen ninety-five, Vinodagrev bought the Babaev chocolate business in Russia's first aggressive stock market takeover. Which is a little surprising. I mean, nineteen ninety-five, that's pretty late in the game to have a first aggressive stock market takeover. But, you know, who am I? I don't know shit. The transaction was acclaimed for its openness and fairness, because Vinodegrav provided minority shareholders the same terms even after he had acquired over 50% of the shares. In other words, when you acquire 50% of the shares, now you are the majority shareholder. And you can turn around and you can screw over the people who already own minority shares. I I don't really know about shares, but I know that there's ways that you can screw the minority shareholders. You can like cut them in half or double them or something. And like, I know that they did it to Bitcoin when it hit like 8K and it's like really dirty. And Vinodegrav never made any kind of attempt to do that. He always was just like, yeah, this is what they own and this is what it's worth. And it always stayed that same worth. And Bank was charged in 1994, with being compromised by Russian organized crime figures associated with Simon Mogilevich by gaining control over Incombank, Mogilevich and his associates they were able to access significant financial resources and they were able to establish an extensive network of clients the control of this bank allowed them to exploit the bank for their criminal activities obviously money laundering was number 1 but they also used it for embezzlement purposes. There was a whole bunch of financial fraud going on in this bank throughout the entirety of his control over the bank. The only problem is everybody knows Simone Moglovit and they know what he's about. The criminal activities associated with his control of Incombank Bank did not go unnoticed forever. As suspicions of money laundering and financial irregularities grew. Russian authorities started to investigate the bank. In 1998, the Russian government revoked Income Bank's banking license, which just effectively shut it down. Like, think of if you own a bar and somebody takes away your liquor license, you no longer have a bar. It's not a bar. So same thing here. They took away their banking license. It's not a bank. You can't do anything. The exposure of Income Bank's illicit activities and its connections to Mogilevich dealt a pretty serious blow to Mogulovich's criminal empire. Because if you think about it, he gained so much exposure and credibility through his owning and running this bank. So all of a sudden, they're like, hey, this is not a legit bank. And they take away its banking license. And all of a sudden, Mogulovich is a pariah. Nobody's going to work with him again. No legit company will work with him after it's worldwide known that he took down the biggest bank in Russia. It soon became known that many big names in New York, which is the hub of finance for the entire planet, knew very well that Income Bank was a Russian scam. The VP of the Bank of New York said in 1996 that they were aware that Income Bank was a front that was used to steal the deposits of its bankers. Not bankers, maybe like the people that bank with them, clients, customers, meh, either way. It was made to steal. Over $15 billion was laundered through these accounts. And the big names on Wall Street knew about it the entire time. A significant meeting was scheduled in Prague in the Czech Republic in May of 1995 that involved Semyon Mogolevich and Sergei Mikolov, the head of the Solzhenyavu, Bratva, which is different than the Solznievo that Mogilevich owns. Like, it's its its own entity. It's not the same thing. I don't really understand the Russian mafia names, but it's not the same thing. Two totally different groups. So, Semyon Mogilevich owns one group. Sergei Mikhailov owns another group. For some reason, I'm seeing the names of both being listed as the Solznievo I don't really know. But yeah, just know that they're each the leader of their own respective groups. Now, this meeting in Prague, it's taking place because it's supposed to be a birthday party for one of the deputy members of the Solznievo Mafia, which is this is the Mikhailov's Mafia. But obviously, you know, the the big heads of the Mafia, they invite each other around. So this is a party for somebody in... Mikhailov's group, but they invite Semyon Mogulovic. So everything's all set. Mogolevich is going to show up to the party. It's a birthday party. Everybody's got their little party hats on. Everything's going to go off without a hitch. And Mogolevich doesn't show up. This party was raided as it first started. And two 100 people were arrested. 150 of those people were gangsters and 50 of them were prostitutes. Footage of the raid shows police escorting a shit ton of women that are being brought along in their bra and underwear, and also shows them dragging along very sharply dressed men. After the raid, which took place at Mogilevich's restaurant, yuholeb 30 people that were arrested at that party were expelled from the country. When police first entered the restaurant, Everybody that was there started clapping, thinking it was like a skit for the birthday party. Like, you know how strippers usually turn up and they turn up in like cop uniforms. Everybody in the restaurant thinks that this is a skit and they're clapping and the cops are sitting there like, nah, bro, we're serious. We're here to arrest you and it took a little bit for them to believe them. The raid was initiated after the Czech police had heard that Mogolevich was going to be executed at this party, but he was tipped off by a member of the Czech police that a raid was about to be carried out, and he was one of the few members of the organization that were not arrested that day. At first, when I saw that he escaped, I was like, well, that's really messed up. You just allowed everybody in your organization to get arrested, and you just jetted off by yourself? Like, that's a little screwed up. But then the fact that it was raided to prevent him from being executed makes me feel a little better about that. Like, alright, bro, like, yeah. I wouldn't show up either, so who the fuck am I? This raid was noteworthy because it was the first time that we were seeing two influential figures in the criminal underworld kind of mingled together. Semyon Moglovich and Sergei Mikolov, they don't run in the same circles. That's just not a thing. You don't see them together. So the fact that this party was raided and people within each of the groups were pulled out, it's pretty significant. Both individuals are highly regarded for their power within their respective criminal organizations. And their meeting represented a significant convergence of interests and cooperation between the Ukrainian and Russian criminal networks, which is unheard of. That just doesn't happen. Look at today. There's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. Things have never been great between the two. So seeing this happen is a pretty big deal. After the near miss at the party, Mogulovich reached out to the police to arrange a meeting. So the police are like, oh, hell yeah, we want to hear what he has to say. So they set up a meeting in Poisdorf, Austria. While there, Mogulovich would look at some of the investigating police officers dead in the eye and ask if they thought they could compete with him. He wanted to know firsthand why they carried out the raid, and he offered a deal he would give them information about the Russian mafia in exchange for his ability to move without looking over his shoulder. Like, take me off the most wanted, make it so that I'm not going to get arrested every time I go out of the house, and I'll give you all the information you want. Police did not accept this offer. The police that did not accept the offer were soon arrested on fabricated charges. So like, Moglovich was pissed and he was out to fuck these guys' lives up. Although the charges were dropped eventually, these arrests had serious implications on these cops' careers. One of the cops credits this arrest with ruining his life, ruining his marriage, giving him gray hair, and everything that was wrong in his life started right here with this arrest. The raid itself was likely part of a broader law enforcement offer to combat organized crime, and disrupt the activities of these powerful criminal figures. They had been accused a lot of just kind of turning a blind eye to organized crime. And this arrest, because of how publicized and big it was, it was kind of their way to be like, look, we're not okay with it. We're arresting people. See, we're, we're fighting the power. It demonstrated the determination of the Czech authorities to confront and dismantle the influence of international organized crime Within their borders, like they were like, no, this is not going on in our borders. And the public is like, you ain't going to do shit. You ain't going to do shit. And the police are like, I, I cool bet, hold my beer and they go and they arrest 200 people and kick 30 of them out of the country like wild. The issues that led up to the other gang wanting to whack Mogolevich was most likely related to a five million dollar payment that was under dispute. Like, Mogilevich was supposed to make a payment of $5 million. He was like, uh, but no. And it was just like a big beef over this $5 million that was supposed to be paid. So it's going back and forth. And now they're like, all right, fuck it, let's just kill him. But it's thought that a top Czech police official went to Mogolevich and told him that something was going to happen. And honestly, it doesn't really even matter if he warned him that he was going to be executed at the party or if he warned him that there was a raid coming, either way, he made sure that Mogilevich was not there. After this whole party thing, Mogilevich's entry to the Czech Republic was prohibited for 10 years. Hungary's government branded him a persona non grata, and the British government forbade his entry into the UK, describing him as one of the most dangerous men in the entire world. In the late 1990s, a significant revelation occurred regarding the involvement of Semyon Mogulovich and others that are associated with the Russian mafia in a publicly traded company listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange called YBM Magnix International Incorporated. So the late 1990s, specifically like 98 and 99, this was a terrible time. For Semyon Mogilevich. We're going to go over a bunch of different, like, really high-profile things that went wrong in this man's life at this time, but it's just bang after bang after bang. 1998 was a terrible freaking year for this man, and he got everything he deserved. He really did, and that's speaking like, I'm trying to be careful because this guy's alive, and it is very possible he could hear about this. Very unlikely because, I mean, I have 5,000 followers. Definitely great, love it to death, but not exactly something that would get through to the person that it's about. So let's talk right now about YBM Magnix. YBM Magnix International Incorporated was a company that specialized in the manufacturing and distribution of industrial magnets. It was founded in the early 1990s by Anatoly Kulachenko, and some of the listed board members were men such as Jacob Bogatin, who was a Russian immigrant living in Philadelphia, which is where the company was based out of. Now, I'm not really sure if Jacob Bogatin immigrated to America to run YBM Magnix, but somehow he ended up in Philadelphia and so did YBM Magnix. Bogatin has ties to the Russian mafia, and he used this company as a front for money laundering and other illicit activities. In 1997 and 1998, Canadian journalists, including a team from The Globe and Mail newspaper, conducted extensive investigations into YBM Magnix and the people who were involved in it. Not just the owners, but the people who were heavily running the company and the people who had a lot of stock in the company itself. Through their efforts, they uncovered a web of connections between the company and the organized crime figures in Russia particularly Semyon Mogilevich and Sergei Mikhailov. The journalist investigations revealed that Mogilevich and other really important Russian mafia guys had significant control and influence over YBM Magnix. They identified connections between the company's management, its board of directors, and really high-ranking Russian-organized crime figures. And they put this out there. They didn't just, like, find it and stifle it. They went public with this shit. After this investigation from the Canadian journalists, the FBI charged the people that were pointed out in the article with weapons trafficking, contract murders, extortion, drug trafficking, and prostitution on an international scale. The exposure of YBM Magnix's criminal connections raised huge concerns throughout the world about money laundering, fraud, And the integrity of the Toronto Stock Exchange as a whole. Like, imagine how crazy it would be to find out that Wall Street as a whole might be a whole scam. Like, yes, we all know that it's dirty. We all know that there's scams here and there. But this had people for the first time questioning the integrity of the Toronto Stock Exchange as a whole. And that's the main hub of finance for all of Canada. So this is a really scary time. As a result of the investigations, YBM Magnix's stocks plummeted, and overnight, they became worthless. The company eventually filed for bankruptcy in 1998. See, that that little year for him in 1998, it was bad. Jacob Bogatin and other key figures associated with the company faced legal consequences, including criminal charges related to fraud, money laundering, and racketeering. So pretty much they got Rico thrown at them. On May 13th, 1998, a raid was carried out on the Newtown, Pennsylvania headquarters of YBM by scores of FBI agents and other U.S. government organizations. There was pictures of this in the newspaper. Like, picture Enron. That's what's going on here. Like, it's just cops everywhere picking up every single piece of paper. Everything is coming out of that building. The raid was part of a coordinated effort by law enforcement agencies and the point of it was to investigate and dismantle the criminal activities that were associated with YBM Magnix. The authorities had been investigating this company forever, like a long time, and they suspected that it was involved in money laundering, fraud, and other illegal activities. Now, when Mogulovich gets the phone call, ring, 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 hey, guess what? The FBI is here and they're raiding the place. He goes boop, boop, boop and transfers $300 million dollars out of YBM Magnix's bank account and transfers it to offshore accounts that the FBI wouldn't have access to. Which is just the balls, the audacity, man. Like, oh, they're in my building right now? Okay, and makes that transfer. You are literally asking for the entire world to come after you. Especially when it's worth a billion dollars. It's not even necessary. Eat that 300 mil, bro. Like, yeah, it's a lot of money, but not worth your life. This raid led to Mogulovich sharing a spot on FBI's top 10 most wanted with names such as Osoma bin Laden. One of the biggest revelations in the FBI's search of the headquarters was that the conspiracy went even deeper than they thought. They thought there was some money laundering going on. They thought there was some fraud and some stuff. But this investigation led to the FBI finding out that YBM had dealing with money laundering, drugs, weapons a whole lot of other stuff. But one thing that this company did not have any kind of association with was the manufacturing of magnets. There was not one magnet being manufactured. There was not one magnet being sold. YBM magnets did not sell magnets, had no part of magnets. Prior to the raid, YBM Magnets had enjoyed significant success and the company was valued at around a billion dollars on the Toronto Stock Exchange. After the YBM fiasco, Mogolevich would go underground and he pretty much hid from the world so that no police force could locate him to arrest him because every single police force was trying to. He spent some time on the run in Prague running his vast criminal empire out of the U Holubu restaurant the uholabu it's the restaurant where the raid was carried out at the birthday party where they were going to try to execute him. As many times as the FBI or any other criminal investigation units attempted to infiltrate the organization Mogulovich ran, they were always unsuccessful. This guy was always a step ahead. They couldn't get a person in there. They couldn't get a person that was already in there to talk. It was impenetrable. And that had a lot to do with the fact that most of the people in this Bradfa are relatives and it's that blood is thicker than water type thing. People claimed that he had a sixth sense, and he could foresee any members of his organization turning rat and informing. So no matter how hard they tried or for how long, they never got anywhere. Tamas Burroughs, a restaurant owner in Budapest, who also just so happened to be a mafioso, decided to flip and speak with police in 1997 after being continually required to pay off the mafia, even though, according to him, which we know is a lie, he never had any actual involvement in the criminal element of the business. So in other words, it's the same thing as the American mafia going to the shop down the street and saying, hey, you're going to pay us to operate your business. And Burroughs just got tired of it. He's like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And he went to the police. A TNT bomb detonated, killing four people and injuring 22 people. Tamas Burros was one of those four, and the bomb was detonated on a street where he regularly commuted. In other words, they knew exactly where he was going to be. They knew exactly where to find him, and they found him. This was only one of hundreds of bombs that were detonated by Mogilevich in the city of Budapest, so much so that bombings became known as a signature of Mogilevich's. Now, let's talk about the Russian Mafia as a whole. Originating in the 1980s, the Russian Mafia was a byproduct of the political and economic changes that occurred during the transition from the Soviet Union to a market economy. I hope you remember how earlier in this episode I was talking about how the Bratvas took advantage of the confusion that came out of the Soviet Union falling. This is the point where that happens. The collapse of the Soviet Union created a huge power vacuum and economic instability. Nobody knew what was happening. Every politician got more power or less power. Nobody knew what to expect day to day. And that allowed all the criminal organizations to thrive. The Russian mafia capitalized on this chaos and took advantage of the weakened state of institutions and the emerging capitalist market. The Soviet Union officially fell on December 26th, 1991 following an unsuccessful coup in August of 1991 against Gorbachev. A huge point of contention in the falling of this union was the Berlin Wall. The wall was built in August of 1961 to prevent Germans from escaping communist-dominated East Berlin into democratic West Berlin. It was a 12-foot concrete wall that spanned hundreds of miles and encased all of East Berlin. This wall had electrified fences and guard posts all throughout. I don't know about you, but if I had to build a wall to keep people in rather than keep people out, I would feel like I was doing a pretty shitty job of leading, but that's just me. Now, the reason that I bring that up, because where we were was way past that, the reason that I bring up the wall and the fall of the Soviet Union is the same reason that when I talk about the Italian Mafia, I talk about Prohibition. I say all the time, Prohibition created the Mafia, creating a situation where criminal groups can just attack the market and grow. That's what America did. And that's what created the Italian Mafia in America and is in essence, the American Mafia. Well, the fall of the Soviet Union, that is what created the Russian Mafia. The Russian Mafia operates through a hierarchical structure with a clear chain of command. The upper echelons of the organization are typically composed of high-ranking members known as vori v. zakone, or thieves-in-law. Now, I know you do not have to tell me how bad I pronounced that, okay? I'll put the word on the screen. You know what I mean. I suck at pronunciation. Now, these individuals, they're very respected. They hold significant authority within the criminal worlds. Below them are members who carry out the organization's day-to-day operations, and they're often involved in like extortion, drug trafficking, smuggling, weapons, money laundering, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of them are involved in human trafficking. Human trafficking is really big in Russia. One of the distinguishing features of the Russian mafia is its strict code of conduct, known as the Thieves' Code. The code emphasizes loyalty, honor, and respect within the criminal fraternity. It's pretty much omerta. Violations of the code can result in severe consequences, including retribution and expulsion from the organization, or obviously, death. The Russian government made a lot of efforts to combat organized crime. They even would like implement specialized units. They would put out legislation targeted against these groups, But the interconnectedness of the Russian mafia with politicians, business owners, and law enforcement agencies, it often presents a huge problem in dismantling any of these gangs. The same way that America loves to act like they took the mafia down, but yet there's headlines on a regular basis about mafia members. It's impossible to take the mafia down, no matter what country you're in or how good your leadership is. An FBI informant revealed to the agency in 1998 that one of Magalovich's top lieutenants met two Russians from New York City with connections to the Genovese crime family in Los Angeles to arrange a plan to dump toxic trash from the United States in Russia. According to a top-secret FBI assessment, the Red Mafia would dispose of the poisonous waste in a Chernobyl site probably through payoffs to the decontamination authorities there, according to Mogilevich's man from LA. Going back to the doomed year of 1998, the money laundering scheme that existed until 1998, but started in the early 90s, implicated not only Income Bank, but also implicated Bank Menatep in a massive operation that saw transactions going through the Bank of New York worth an estimated 10 billion dollars. When I went over the income bank collapse, I mentioned that high-ranking officials from the Bank of New York knew that this was a Russian scam, and we only know this because of the investigation where the Bank of New York was actually heavily intertwined with Income Bank and Bank Menatap, and Bank Menatap is another huge bank in Russia. During the late 1990s, it was discovered that the funds were being illegally transferred through accounts held at Bank of New York. Because anything going on in America has to get back to Russia somehow, and that's how. It's going through Bank of New York. The operation involved a complex network of shell companies and transactions that were pretty much designed to look like the origins and destinations of the illicit funds were legit. Income Bank and Bank Manitap, two Russian financial institutions, were identified as participating in this money laundering scheme. While Mogulvich's direct involvement in the money laundering scheme has not been proven in court, he was believed to have been a significant influence and hold a lot of control over both of these banks. That allowed him to facilitate and benefit from illicit transfers. The operation was an example of the Russian mafia's ability to exploit weaknesses in the financial system and international banking in order to launder a vast amount of money. Like, this guy is a freaking genius. He finds the tiniest little loophole and just runs with it and makes billions of dollars. And it doesn't matter where. Imagine doing this kind of shit in the United States? Like, this man went to the US and said, fuck your banking laws, here, let me do this. But it's sad because this is like a Ponzi scheme. Like, think of how many people had everything invested in YBM. Everything. When YBM fell, it was massive in America. And same thing with like Enron and any other Ponzi scheme that you can think of. People had their entire retirements and 401ks and everything tied up in YBM. And the fall of that company ruined a lot of lives. This is not a victimless crime. In addition to the money laundering case, Moglovich was suspected of having involvement in a large scale tax fraud scandal that unfolded around 1990 to 1991. The tax fraud scandal represented one of the major controversies that emerged during the economic transition in Russia. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the subsequent shift to a market economy created huge opportunities for criminal elements to exploit loopholes in weak regulatory systems. Because think about it, when the Soviet Union existed, it has this set of laws. But now the Soviet Union is falling apart. And every individual place has to come up with its own new set of rules. So, these new set of rules haven't had a chance to go through the cases and everything that the Soviet Union's rules had. The regulatory system is non existent at this time. And the mafia and smart dudes like Mogilevich, who have a very vast knowledge of financial craziness, they're going to take advantage. Mogulovich was allegedly involved in orchestrating this fraudulent scheme, which led to significant financial losses for the state, and undermined the legitimacy of the emerging economic system. It put a lot of eyes in the wrong place. Like, the Soviet Union falling is its own huge mess. Now, everybody's scared. This is a very uncertain time for the people that live there. Now, you've got Mogulovich over here doing all kinds of crazy shit and it's coming out in the public and the public is scared. They're like, wow, we were already scared but now you're telling me that our economy could just fall apart because one dude knows what he's doing with a fucking balance sheet? Like, really? The tax fraud scandal, pretty much what it is, it's the difference between untaxed heating oil and highly taxed car fuel in Central Europe. So you got car fuel, you got heating oil two totally different things. Car fuel is highly taxed. Home heating oil, untaxed. So they're selling car fuel, which is actually highly taxed, but they're writing down that they're selling home heating oil so they're not getting taxed on it. They ran this scam through Central Europe, including the Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia, and Poland. And this is a huge, huge significant event because it caused substantial tax losses for these countries during an uncertain time where they're trying to rebuild their economy from the fall of the Soviet Union. It's estimated that one-third of the fuels sold during this scheme were part of the fraudulent operation. So one-third of the sales of fuel was untaxed when it was supposed to be highly taxed, and that has a huge burden on the taxpayers in these places. In the Czech Republic specifically, the tax fraud scandal is estimated to have cost taxpayers around 100 billion CZK, which is equivalent to about 5 billion dollars. It's a lot of freaking money for an emerging country. The scale of the fraud and the extent of the losses had a huge impact on the country's economy and public finances, obviously. Like, any $5 billion scheme is going to have a huge impact on the entire country, especially a smaller one. Apart from the financial implications, the scandal was also marked by its association with criminal activities. The depths of the corruption and criminality involved in this scheme included acts of violence, included murders, and included an attempted assassination of a journalist who was writing about the issue. These acts were likely carried out to intimidate and silence individuals who threatened to expose the fraudulent operation and the criminals behind it. The tax fraud scandal revealed the extent of which organized crime networks had infiltrated various sectors and institutions in the affected countries. It exposed the vulnerabilities of the transactional economies and the challenges they faced in combating complex criminal operations. And it pretty much just told them like, hey, we know you're used to having this long-standing Soviet Union who has established rules and boundaries, but this right here is why it's so important to have that. Because if you don't come off the bat with that already strong set of laws, you're going to get screwed, and this is a perfect example of it. According to the FBI, Mogilevich, along with a lot of other people, orchestrated a scheme to artificially inflate the value of the YBM Magnix's stock. They manipulated financial statements, they fabricated sales and profits, and they used deceptive practices to give the illusion of a successful and profitable company when there really wasn't one. And that's exactly what we see in a lot of these schemes. You look at Enron, same exact thing. The scheme was aimed to get investors to buy YBM Magnix stocks at inflated prices way more than it was actually worth. Mogilevich took control of the entire energy trade in Ukraine, spending a vast majority of his time on the run scamming people from the Ukraine, and ultimately, he would be sued by the Prime Minister of the Ukraine. She claims that his involvement and manipulation of the gas market in the Ukraine had a huge impact on the country's entire economy. He also had an umbrella company named Aragon Limited, where he structured all of his financial operations around, So an umbrella company is just like one big company, and then you have shell companies or like subsidiary companies that open underneath this big umbrella company. So like Argon Limited is the umbrella, and then you've got YBM Magnets, and you got the other bank, you got all these different names. Argon Limited is the umbrella company. Argon Limited was registered in the Channel Islands in the UK, and it was also heavily involved in the sale of oil products to the Ukryzoliznista, the Ukrainian State Railway Administration. I think I did halfway decent on that word, because that is a wild word. You really just spell things like that, and people can just, like, read it. You don't have to look it up. You just see it, and you're like, oh, that says Ukryzoliznista. Like, what? You got some friggin' geniuses over there, man, because I listened to it said, like, four times before I, like, Pronounced it out, Oo Kriz Aliz Nitza. Oo Kriz And you guys just read that. Like, oh yeah, no big deal. Oo Kriz Like, that's fucking awesome. I don't have that in me. Aragon's banking network existed in the United States, in Sweden, London, the UK, Geneva, Switzerland, and Switzerland is where the Swiss bank accounts happen. And that's where you have the ability to have a high standard of privacy. Everybody's heard about a Swiss bank account and how it's like impenetrable. No government or anything can grab the money from a Swiss bank account. And that leads to very few Swiss bank accounts ever being viewed, let alone seized by any government. Aragon Limited operated under the DBA FNJ Trade Management Corporation in Los Angeles, California, and YBM Magnix in Newtown, Pennsylvania, in the United States. So there's other places that Aragon Limited is operating, but in the United States, these are the two legal names, and there's other legal names as well. In Hungary, he opened up a black and white nightclub, which was the base of operations whenever he was in Hungary. And then in Prague, he had U Holobu restaurant, and that's where his base of operation was whenever he was in Prague. So he had these little like nightclub restaurant things wherever he went, and depending on where he was, that was his base of operations that day. In September of 1999, police in Budapest, Hungary tracked down Maklovich's house, and they carried out a raid to capture him from this house. Because it's 99, he's already done YBM, he's already done a whole bunch of stuff. So the Hungarian police, they want him. An anonymous tip led police straight to this little classical little gray house with a yellow lab in the driveway. Footage of the raid shows armed police knocking down the doors, finding multiple people in the house and dragging them out in handcuffs. But Maglovic was not one of them. Most likely, some police contact yet again gave him a heads up and he was able to get out of there before everybody else. He fled the country and headed straight to Moscow, Russia, which is one of the only places on Earth that does not have an extradition treaty with the United States. If you're fleeing the U.S. government, Moscow is where you want to go. Just ask Edward Snowden. In Russia, Maglovich started to give interviews ripping apart the FBI. Russia continually airs political propaganda against the U.S. So there's nothing new here. But now Mogilevich is getting in on it. And he's like, yeah, I was there and they're horrible. And the fact that he's doing this, he has actual relations with the United States and he has testimony to give about how they're terrible. They are lapping it up. They love it. Because one thing a Russian is going to love is propaganda about the United States He categorically denies any wrongdoing at all. According to him, he's not a criminal. He's just a business owner, and he is just yet another victim of the big, bad, mean U.S. government that just tries to chase everybody down and arrest them. The U.S. requested extradition, and they were denied. The Italian government started to instigate their own investigations and make their own request for extradition because of how involved Maglevich was in the mafia in Italy, but Russia denied their claims as well. Italian investigators eventually landed on a reason that Russia refused to accept any extradition requests by sitting down with a lieutenant colonel from Russia named Alexander Litvinenko. And Alexander is an important Russian spy. He specializes in espionage and high-profile figures. He does all the cool stuff, like what you expect a Russian spy to be. That's Alexander. And when Italy sat down with him, they uncovered that Moglovich wasn't just being protected by the Russian government. He was Russian government. Similar to the way that the U.S. worked with Luciano, but not really because they didn't protect him, the Russian Secret Service worked in concert with Maglovich and everything he did was approved by them. They wouldn't arrest him for carrying out acts that they requested he do and he was giving them a cut of what he was making no extradition means that he will remain free in the country of russia and alexander even claims that Mogilevich was extremely well connected with the highest of authority figures in russia like think putin level power he tells police about how Mogilevich lives in an extravagant villa in moscow next door to the head of the communist party and the house that he lives in is exclusively habitated by russian heads of state or senior level officials so He's treated like a senior-level official. He's given all the amenities of a diplomat. Shortly after he spoke with the Italian authorities, Alexander was found poisoned in London after meeting with two Russian authority figures at a bar at the Millennium Hotel in London. They figured out that he had been poisoned through a cup of tea that he drank, and this cup of tea had radioactive material in it. And after 23 days in the hospital suffering and struggling to live, he died on November 6, 2006. The addition of Maglovich to the FBI's most wanted list, it kind of showed the international nature of his criminal activities and the determination of law enforcement agencies to bring him to justice. Everybody wanted this man. Everyone. Like, every single country but Russia. And Russia's just like, Putin is that dude. Putin wants all that smoke. He's like, yeah, come get him. Come get him, like he's ready for it. So nobody wants to go to war to get their hands on this guy, but Putin will go to war to protect him. When all is said and done, Maglovich is suspected of ordering the murder of hundreds and hundreds of people. Subsequently, on January 23rd, 2008, Maglovich was arrested as he left the World Trade Center in Moscow on charges of suspected tax evasion. He was accused of a tax evasion scheme that cost 50 million rubles. At the time, that would equal out to about $2 million in the United States. Tax evasion. Now, when you get charged with tax evasion, think about when you get arrested for tax evasion. It's usually two officers. Like, it's not this big dog and pony show. But for Semyon Moglovich, there was a dog and pony show. Over 50 police officers showed up to this arrest. After the arrest, he was granted bail and he was released July 24th, 2009. The Russian Interior Ministry justified his release by stating that the charges against him were not of a particularly grave nature. Like, bro, chill. It's not even that serious. We do what we want. If we want to arrest him, we will. But it's not that serious. Like, sit down, mind your business, get out of our face. The decision to release him raised a lot of eyebrows in the rest of the world. It sparked a lot of speculation about potential corruption or even lack of resolve to prosecute Maglovich for these serious crimes. So they're like, yo, are you in on this? Like, we're hearing rumblings from, like, random Russian spies that you're in on it. But the fact that you arrested him and then you let him go, like, are you in on it? I'm kind of starting to believe that. And everybody's looking at Russia very sideways right now. Russia's handling of Maglovich's arrest and release raised a lot of concerns among international law enforcement agencies, and it had a lot of people wondering about Russian authorities and their ability to pursue high-profile criminals, especially high-profile criminals involved in organized crime. It's just kind of like, it's kind of looking like they don't really want to arrest them. It's kind of looking like maybe they support them. Ivan Ferson has been closely linked to Semyon Moglovich. Person is a Russian businessman and politician who's faced his own legal issues, and he's had his own allegations of involvement in criminal activity. And he is right next to Maglevich, like, oh yeah, they said I was a criminal too. How could they do that? They make me look like a criminal. And it's like, bro, you are a criminal. Just because the U.S. says it doesn't mean that it's not true. You are a criminal. He's been described as a very close associate and confidant of Maglevich. And it looks like their ties go beyond mere business connections. And now Furson, he is in the government. He's a businessman and a politician. So the fact that there's a relationship between Magalowicz and Ferson, like that matters. It means something. As a politician, you don't get to just be friends with criminals and not have everybody look at you weird. Especially if you're a politician who has been accused of doing dirty shit in the past it's a lot easier to say like, oh, I'm not a criminal. I've never done anything bad when you're not like knocking elbows with the criminal next door. Their friendship, like out in the open, they're not scared of like the media or anything. And this highlights like the interconnectedness of the various individuals involved in organized crime. Maglovich is clearly in the mafia and Person is a high-up politician, so, I mean, it makes the Russian mafia look a lot less scary when they're running around with politicians. Such associations and network make it a lot more challenging for law enforcement agencies to dismantle criminal enterprises because it has these politicians' support. Semyon Moglovich became the 494th wanted person when he was put on the FBI's Top 10 Most Wanted list on October 22, 2009. The FBI's top 10 most wanted list, which is widely publicized, emphasizes the most evasive and lethal criminals wanted by law enforcement. Now, they made this decision to add Maglovich to the list because they want him and they cannot get him. And this is a serious list like you got to be Osama bin Laden or someone of that magnitude to get added to this list. So it took a lot for them to make the decision to put Moglovich on this list. So the fact that they put him there shows just how bad they want him and just how bad they think he is. However, in December of 2015, Moglovich was removed from the top 10 most wanted list by the FBI. The bureau cited that he no longer met the criteria for inclusion on the list because he's in Russia. What are they gonna do? Like, and he's not even doing any crazy shit anymore. His prime was like 1998. Since that happened, he really hasn't been committing crimes, or if he has, Russia's been keeping it quiet. And there's really not a point of keeping somebody on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list when they're living freely in another country who's protecting him. So they took him off. His removal from the list doesn't mean that he's any less dangerous or that they're any less gung-ho to get their hands on them, it just means that he's being protected by an entire government and there's really nothing we can do. They're looking at practical limitations and they're not being stupid about it. Maglovich is said to have formed alliances with the Camorra, a significant Italian criminal group with headquarters in Naples. And more specifically, in the Camorra, he's said to have a really strong relationship with Salvatore di a member of the Giulano clan Within the Camorra, and it's said that there's like proof of actual conversations and relationship going on between DeFalco and Moglovich. The meetings between Moglovich and DeFalco in 1993 are thought to have taken place in Prague. I do know that there was a member of Moglovich's group who came to America after healing from a gunfight with the Camorra in Italy. So I don't know if it's always been smooth sailing, and I don't know where they stand right now, but I do know that there is a relationship. Salvatore DeFalco, described as a lower echelon member of the Giulano clan, was likely involved in carrying out the directives of higher-ranking members. So, like, the boss sent DeFalco to go do it. They're like, we're not going to be seen hobnobbing with this dude that is also supplying terrorists with nukes. However... We do want this message to get put along to him. So DeFalco, you lowly little soldier, you go. Semyon Moglovich has an ability to evade arrest from the entire world. Like the entire world has tried to arrest him forever and and they can't. Nobody's ever been able to get their hands on him. The only solace that the United States government has is that they consider Moglovich on house arrest. He's safe as long as he never leaves his house or Russia. They consider Russia to just be a big house. And the second he steps outside of it, they are going to nab him, according to them. I don't think they would even know, honestly. But according to them, they're going to get him. To this day, there's a reward for up to $5 million for information leading to an arrest or conviction of Maglovich. The German national television network, ZDF, reported that the BND, which is Germany's FBI, entered into an agreement under the table with Maglovich in which Maglovich provides information about other Russian gangs, and he is untouchable for them. Police in Belgium, Germany, and Austria complain that it's impossible to investigate him. They can't make any television or newspaper reports about him. They can't go after him for anything. He can't even get a parking ticket. This man is untouchable in that entire area of the world. Despite numerous efforts by law enforcement agencies from the rest of the world to apprehend Maglovich, he has managed to evade arrest and remains at large to this day. Standing at 5'6", weighing around 300 pounds, Maglovich has a raspy voice from years of being a heavy smoker. And once again... $5 $5 million reward for information leading to his arrest. So uh, keep that in mind if you're ever walking and you see someone that looks like it might be him. All right, that is all I have for Moglovich. Thank you so much for watching. I know this was a long episode, so if you're still here, I appreciate it. Join me next week as I continue to delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things. And I'll see you next week. Bye.